Welcome to Let's with Amplify, where we have lively entrepreneurial talks focused on helping you grow your business through sound financial strategy. Here are your hosts, Jamie L. Smith and Jesse Ferguson. Thanks for joining us. Let's with Amplify, lively entrepreneurial talks. Jesse, are you excited to talk about navigating business? Do you feel like you're the right person to have a conversation about navigating business? As good as any. As good as any. <laughs> How it's <laughs> a broad topic. Inspiring. So, if you go back to when we decided to incorporate, that was May 2018. You officially um, left your former employer and came on board October 2018. If someone could have told you something about navigating business, what do you wish they would have told you? Or would you just never have listened anyways? At the time, I definitely wouldn't have listened. <laughs> okay. So assuming you would have listened, what would you wish that someone had said? I don't think a lot of the mechanical things of running a business have really changed in my mind. Um, probably how incredibly valuable leadership is in terms of uh, the ability to handle and solve problems. Um, and then probably like people, right? Like, uh, you're not really, if you're running a team of robots, business would probably be a lot easier, but when you're running a team of people and they keep growing <laughs> here, you know, you got to listen, you got to, you know, you gotta, you gotta serve the people below you, um, in terms of, uh, they turn into your business. So that was probably the biggest surprise that I've had. And what I could have probably, if I was listening at the time, I would have probably saved some headaches down the road. I love it. I love it for two reasons. One, it hits on the first topic we're going to discuss today. And two, it's not misaligned with what I wish someone would have told me. I think obviously there's a recency effect, but to some degree, my lesson that I am the most surprised of from 2022 and still figuring out in 2023 is that whole idea of leader. Not everyone wants to be a leader. Mm. That was a hard lesson. Um, turns out some people like to actually be doers or, um, or Not everyone's motivated by the same uh, by the same things either, right? Yeah, totally. So that has been a bit of a surprise. And had someone told me that, I think we could have saved ourselves a little bit of 2022 heartache and pain. <laughs> so jumping into our actual topic, discussion on how growth businesses can grow with the right people, including financial leadership. And so we're going to talk a bit today about the executive bus, so right on topic with what both of us wish we had heard or listened to back in 2018. We're going to talk about the whole concept of, ouch, my, I hurt my head, I hit a ceiling in business, and so frequently it is that pain point of hitting your head on a ceiling in business that actually gives us an opportunity to help businesses with their people and their process and technology, because that's what drives them to take the big step of investing in themselves with us. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about an idealistic story. When do we need a CFO? What what does it take within a business to need to invest in financial leadership? 
And uh, we're going to talk about the accounting and finance function. It's not necessarily the department that people spend their time uh, worrying about or thinking about. And as a result of that, they often don't actually understand who's who in the zoo when it comes to the accounting and finance function. So that's today's topic. Are you excited? Always. Always excited. So the executive bus, there's the concept of right right people, right seats. It comes from traction and EOS. We hear it frequently. And, you know, what does it really mean? Um, what are some of the lessons or, or pain points you've seen in business, Jesse, that you want to touch on when it comes to that right person, right seat? But specifically, let's let's really target in on the executive bus and the leadership because to our points earlier, I think that's an area that people maybe don't think about ahead of time enough. Um, I mean, all you, all you can really do is look at our own failures, um, in terms of, uh, lessons learned. I think, um, leadership is tough. I think, uh, especially in an early stage company where you probably don't have the, money or capital to invest in seasoned executives um and oftentimes people are rushed into you know i guess um leadership positions that they're probably not ready for even though they want the title they don't actually know how to do the job so take your time get the right right person and um grow from the bottom up versus the top down yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting because we've got a couple of succession plans going on now and, and some training people into leadership. And I was actually talking about it just this morning with my forum about how we've implemented more of a drip approach. And, and for a person who's not necessarily patient, which would be me, <laughs> there's times where I find it not authentic, right, to be dripping you know, one task at a time, one uh, one concept, one objective at a time. But certainly the way that we're getting buy-in and learning and growth and, and new ideas from these new leaders that we're working with right now, it's proving that it might not be the natural way I would go about it, but it's certainly a better approach. And we're getting results quicker. Like you have to there's that saying, you have to go slow with people in order to go fast. And it feels like we're seeing the results of that. If you slow down, do a drip approach, you actually get further quicker, which is a big surprise to me. Yeah, I I, I think um, I was having the conversation with uh, another business owner the other day about this. And I think what complicates things is like, call it minority owners, minority shareholders, i.e., you know, other business partners, business partners that maybe don't have the same skill set or maybe even the same drive. In this person's situation, they were talking about how they're, they're, you know, business partner who was running a certain aspect of their business was um, not invest in personal growth. Um, you know, and she freely admitted that you know, I don't know all the answers, but I'm continuously learning and 
continuously trying to figure it out. And this, she didn't feel like this person was. And, you know, the question was asked, like, well, have you asked her what she wants? Right. And uh, he was like, no, I haven't. I just assumed they wanted the same thing as me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think when you're dealing with non shareholder, you know, I guess leaders, um, I think they're different situations and they need to be handled differently. Right. Definitely. So we go back to the basic concepts of right person, right seat. Obviously right person is about making sure there's the values alignment and ensuring that they're driven by the values and the North star and the purpose and the strategy of the business. And then right seats is about that roles and responsibilities and understanding skill set. the skill set that's required in order to accomplish the tasks at hand for that position. Um, you know, we, we use a lot of the get it, want it capacity concept. GWC. Yeah. GWC, which basically to a large degree, the get it and want it would be that right person idea. And then the capacity is that right seat. One thing, you know, I'd love to, we'll be vulnerable from an Amplify perspective. We've had a number of cases where we had the right person mm -hmm. and we didn't have the right seat for them. So we tried to find the right seat for them over and over and over again. And pretty much our batting rate is a hundred percent that they don't stay. Uh, and it doesn't work out. And I wonder, you know, if you look back on those right people that were amazing people, we still love them to death. Like they're great value fit. They really, they were really driven by the Amplify purpose. They were amazing professionals and people, uh, but we didn't have the right seat for them. Do you regret trying to find the right seat for them? Or do you think that it's a regret minimization where at least we can and amicably and, and recognize that we did everything we could to keep them. And do you also think that, you know, maybe someday that won't result in a failure rate that we have now because we'll be big enough, there'll be more seats because ultimately we're small and so there's only so many seats. What are your thoughts on that? It's been painful for both of us. You more recently than me. Yeah. I think the logical brain says you should have just moved on. I think the human brain, emotional EQ side of your brain says, I'm glad I gave it a chance. So how you live with that when you go to sleep at night, you know, I guess that's, you know, you have to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and understand what, uh, how, how you know, how you deal with, because, you know, it's, you deal with people. It's not easy people are um you know they matter and so for some people it's uh they have a they can cut a harder line for others they can't so i think it really depends on you as a person and what ultimately allows you to sleep easy at night definitely i think it's um something that we see in so many of our clients is that growth businesses are often invested in their team and their people almost more than anything. And one of the consequences of that is they can be slow to fire for sure and slow to move on. Um, but, you know, it's two sides of the same coin. It's also what 
what generally drives their success and ultimately their profit. And it's one of their strengths as well. For sure. So when we get more targeted towards that CFO seat on the executive bus, um, one of our ahas, we heard John Eden speak about the CFO being a lookout position and that to some degree, their number one job was being a steward on the hill, watching for external financial risks and opportunities and understanding the financial health and situation internally. And she talked about how a CFO and their relationship with the CEO is critical. I love that concept uh, from Jan about the CFO lookout position and and recognizing that financial expertise and where it sits. And I thought a lot of her words about, you know, be a steward on the hill, watch for external risks and opportunities, understand the health could be transferable to like, if you're the CMO, it's the marketing risks and opportunities and the marketing health and brand health. If you're the operation COO, the it's the operational risks and opportunities and the operational health of the business. I thought a lot of her comments were transferable. Um, you know, when you think about an executive, Jesse, do you think, you know, again, just to repeat it, CFO is a lookout position, number one position or number one job, steward on the hill, watch for external financial risks and opportunities, understand the financial health and situation internally, and be the CEO role and the relationship is critical. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, she got it pretty, pretty hit the nail on the head. Yeah, she's coached a lot of the biggest CFOs in town, as well as some of the most more instrumental, agile ones too. So it makes sense. She knows what she's talking about. It kind of raises the question though, and we were talking about this a little bit the other day, and I actually stopped the conversation because I wanted to have it fresh and authentic here in front of a mic. So there's a few concepts with executives. Should you be running an executive team where each individual is a department or functional expert and they're the right-hand man, as they like to say, of the CEO, and they're really there in support to fill the gaps of the CEO and to drive the um, execution on behalf of the CEO and then maybe in turn the CEO and the board. So in that case, you would show up as the CFO representing accounting and finance, representing your financial leadership expertise, and you're very much territorial department representative. You'd have the marketing department doing the same for the marketing area, The sale, maybe the VP sales showing up and pushing for their sales team and for the revenue line. And everybody would have a bit of a territorial aspect. There's a bit of a silo, obviously. But at the end of the day, the CEO would have all these experts and they, in turn, would be able to leverage and pull from that team. So that's one extreme. And then another extreme would be where, no, when we show up, we are showing up as executives and we're showing up as business leaders first and the driver is the strategy and growth and goals of the company and we leave our functional department representation at the door. And that's another job we have, but when we're here at this table around this boardroom, it's about the company and the strategy and the goals, and we're business leaders first, and then experts second. So two extremes, and I think most companies don't live in either extreme, but to a large degree, I've been telling our CFOs, figure out where they lean on the spectrum, both from a current state and an aspirational state, 
because it changes the way you should be showing up and it changes the way that you talk and the language you use. So my first question, Jesse, is, you know, of the two, the territorial functional expert or the business leader first, which one do you think is the most common or the most successful, which might not be the same? <laughs> what is the most common? I mean, I mean, I don't see normally, I wouldn't say like extremes in either one, but if you were to like lean towards one or the other, uh, I would say in bigger businesses, it's probably more departmental, um, you know, professional managers managing their specific areas and less um, cross-business, business-focused. Um, and in more entrepreneurial high-growth companies, it's probably more, you know, showing up. It's about business strategy. And I'm sure, you know, again, this is like... Um, I mean, in terms of their number one priority, I think I think they're always going to be both. But like, what's their number one priority? I'd say you know the clients we work with is probably more business strategy first versus department. Most of them don't even have their enough structure to define that, anyways. So um, we're probably the first introduction into this into a structure and roles and responsibilities. So, but. And do you think one's better than the other, or do you think that it depends? I think it depends. Um, I think it's um, it's a fine line because you know you can get you can get executive teams where you got people poking their nose way too much in other people's business, and um, you know you know putting you know you get cfos that are trying to take over operations or take over hr or take over strategy um and so i don't think that that is a good thing right it has to be um collaborative and bringing a viewpoint on you know how you can help the business versus Everyone is a bunch of idiots, and if they just knew better and listened to me, so and I, and you see that a fair amount from especially the CFO um, lens and definitely the operations lens. So you know that's I think that's a risk that you can go down too much if you're um, almost too collaborative in terms of like blending the lines on an executive team of everyone's just a business stakeholder. But at the same time, um, you know, execution does matter. And, um, you know, if you're not laser focused on the priorities that you need to do in your kind of functional area to execute on that business strategy, well, then the business strategy doesn't even matter anyways. So, um, probably pretty great. If I was to lean one way or another, probably go 51% on department. 51%? Yeah, probably. Yeah. That um, doesn't surprise me. I figured that's what you'd say. And having been the person that kept getting 
poked with their no with someone's nose going in their business. I uh, I didn't love that. Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> Why are you doing this? Yeah, <laughs> leave me alone. It's working. Um, I think you're right, though. It is pretty great, but I think it's critical for executive teams to actually step back and ask themselves, how are we supposed to show up? And, you know, to what degree is it great? To what degree we sh- should we be business leaders first? And to what degree are we representing our expertise or our department? And just making assumptions is dangerous when it comes to language and expectation management. Um, one thing that we talk about with our CFOs, and I'm a big believer of this and interested to see your thoughts on it, Jesse. I think, you know, as an executive, one thing I think is is true personally is that you're not an order taker. And so you should be coming to the table with your idea of what the priorities are or your rocks if you're in an EOS world or what have you. And you have a starting point of what you think needs to get done within your function, within your time, within your roles and responsibilities. And then certainly when you collaborate as a team, those priorities might change because you start to have a better appreciation for the bigger picture and how everything fits in together and, you know, where things are linear or there's interdependencies. So in no way am I suggesting that you come to the table and tell them what you're doing and that's that. But I do think you should come to the table with the first draft and hopefully that draft somewhere between 30 and 80% correct. It won't be 100% correct. Uh, if it is, you're not listening and you're not you're not accepting feedback. But I personally think there's a little bit of an absolute in the sense that if you're an executive and you're literally being told what to do, that either you have a team that's not an actual executive team or you yourself are not showing up as an executive. What are your thoughts on that from that executive bus seat? You know, one, they have to be allowed, permitted to actually have autonomy mistake probably we've made in the past um so don't call them an executive if you actually just want a yes man um and if you do allow them to then yeah you do have to allow them to you have to allow people in their departments to um come to the table with ideas some good some bad um and you know be able to have those open conversations and not sweep sweep things under the rug if they're not going well um and you see that a lot right especially especially in teams that actually have close relationships from a friendship perspective where they don't want to hurt people's feelings um so does that answer your question i think so so i think you know both of us said that had we been navigating business back in 2018 and willing to take other people's advice the area that we would have wanted to hear the most about was leadership and people and that executive bus. So I think it's probably the same thing, I guess. Yeah. It's saying in a different way. It's, it's the starting point for sure. And as people navigate growth, getting that leadership team, right, is critical to scale. And, and if you want to move to the next stage in business, this is, this is point a, absolutely. So let's talk a bit about what it means to move into different stages of business and how we see so frequently businesses hit a ceiling. And obviously, 
that ceiling is often advantageous for us because oftentimes they hit the ceiling. They cannot move to the next stage of business. And as a result, they're excited and willing to bring a CFO on, to bring other uh, financial leaders on, or to bring on technology and process such as NetSuite. So obviously, we love uh, businesses hitting ceilings because it's almost always the reason they call us. Um, But it's because we solve a problem. And let's not forget that hitting a ceiling in business is a problem. And so obviously, investing in people, process, and technology can certainly move you to the next business stage. That's critical. And we'll talk a bit about that. But there's other things that can also move you from one stage to the next in terms of financing or looking at that team um, and looking at financial strategy and and what stage you're in and, and being able to identify it. So first, Jesse, you know, when you think about the stages of business, there's different words. We obviously have uh, pretty decent collateral and thought leadership on it. But just in your own words, what are the stages of businesses that you see and and where the ceilings are most frequently hit? What are the stages? Um, Well, obviously startup would be the first one, pre-revenue. And then as they come out of that, they generally will start selling their product or service. And then usually that kind of lasts for a while. Um, and then they probably hit a certain number of employees where, um, you know, the founders of that business are kind of stretched too thin. And so they start hiring a lot. And then that goes well or doesn't. Um, but, you know, they, let's assume it goes well. Um and then they generally feel like they've lost control, and so they. And then usually something bad happens, <laughs> whether it's uh, you know someone spends too much money on something, or uh, health and safety issue, or you know something, and so they realize that uh, you know they need they need more structure, they need more process maybe different people um and then uh and then so on and so forth usually by the time they kind of get to that let's say third level of growth um we kind of well our fractional cfos are usually not there anymore maybe that's that's the idea if it's gone really well because there's a permanent CFO yeah. that recruiting put in. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So. Well, you know, it's interesting because a couple things that you brought up, I mean, that team that got you there. And if we think about the personalities of an entrepreneur or or the concept of a joiner, right? So obviously an entrepreneur takes major risks, often is visionary and unless they're a reluctant <clears throat> uh, entrepreneur, but you know, they're looking to achieve something and they're looking to take those risks and build something and be part of something that's new and exciting. And then there's the joiners, which are the early people that join entrepreneurial startup companies that, you know, let's not discount the fact that they're taking major risks too. Um, I mean, not a lot of CFOs are excited about becoming a joiner, hence why they'd rather work with Amplify. So they get the opportunity to work in those 
early stage, high risk companies, but they don't actually have to be on those payrolls or be or be a hundred percent exclusive to those companies. Um, it's, it takes a risk to be a joiner. You're looking at an uncertain future, uh, uncertain cash flow, which results in payroll concerns. Oftentimes, you have to buy your job, right? In order to be a joiner, you actually have to invest, or else there's no seat for you. So, you know, is that team that helps you build and start up a business the same team that's going to get you to five, ten? 15 million. And and how hard is it to recognize that maybe it's not? Yeah, probably not. Um probably not. Is that Is that because they don't have the skill set? Um maybe. Um I think certain personalities fit for certain life cycles of a business, right? Some people get excited about chaos and something being new and being created every single day and some people to them that it sounds like a real nightmare so um, I think there's also a factor of just burnout as you go through especially early stage companies you know those joiners are generally um, tons of stress um, tons of pressure tons of um, responsibilities and you know by the time you get into stability you know, they're probably a little bit burnt out and by that point it's time to move on so yeah generally you don't see it through that's for sure but I think it depends on the growth curve for sure if it's manageable steady growth then you see probably um, more people sticking around um, being able to adapt yeah. At a slower pace. Exactly. Um, what about, you know, process and technology? You know, sometimes I see some of our clients, the reason they're excited about being part of a startup or an early stage business is because there's less rules. There's more, it's more agile. There's, you know, they don't have to deal with process. They don't have to deal with policy. They don't have to deal with documentation. They don't have to deal with sophisticated technology, which requires all of the above. And then when you get to a certain stage where you need scale, all of a sudden the pros and cons of process and rules and policy and sophisticated automation outweigh the agile, free flow, off the seat of your pants type of approach. And that can be really difficult if you were the one that didn't have to follow a rule before. Mm -hmm. Is there a question on that? Yeah. How many times have you seen that? Uh, I think you I mean, know the I, I stories that I think it happens a lot whether they actually <laughs> recognize that that's the problem. Uh, maybe, maybe not. But yeah, I think it definitely happens. I'd say it's not usually for employees. It's probably early stage founders not wanting to uh, follow the rules that they put in for the guardrails they put in for their team. But yeah. I think it happens a lot. So you're trying to grow your business. You're looking at the ceilings that you hit and you realize you don't have the people, you don't have the process, you don't have the technology. Maybe you don't have the financing. The next stage is going to take maybe some equity or some debt or some investment. You're 
possibly the people that got you there are not as excited about what it's going to take to get to the next stage. You know, I guess the question could be, do you even want to be at the next stage? Sometimes businesses and entrepreneurs are so committed to growth and being on a treadmill that they don't actually step back and ask themselves, maybe it would be worth realizing what it takes to get there. And that's not that's not actually why you went into business in the first place. Have you seen businesses actually have a constrained approach or or slow down and because they thought this through or most of them just keep going without without pausing? I mean, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, they get into it because they have an idea and they think the world needs them. And I don't think they think too much about where that's going to end up. And then all of a sudden it works and they're like, just keep doing that. Um, at some point, either burnout or you know, something happens where they start looking, where, where the hell am I going? But, um, yeah. So one thing that's certain is when you hit ceilings in business, that's when you got to start reevaluating that executive bus and that executive team. And often times that means deciding whether or not you're ready for a CFO. It's not too common that we run into that many industries where the founders or the initial leadership team includes a finance leader. And so there's a realization, okay, if I want to be- move from being a $1 million business to a $5 million business or $5 million business to a $20 million business that I need financial strategy and I can't keep bootstrapping and doing my own bookkeeping and and uh, and doing my forecast on the back of a napkin. So when exactly do you need a CFO? And I think Amplify's perspective is if your revenue is over a million dollars, if your plans for revenue are over $5 million, if your team is over 10 people, and you have either banking or investor relations, that you need a CFO. So what we've seen in our businesses that we are helping, if they hit all four, they're over a million, they have plans to be over 5 million, they have more than 10 people employed, and they have a banking or investor relationship, they already need a CFO. Why do you think that those things drive the need to bring in that extra person on that executive bus? Uh, complexity, probably. Right? Um, most most businesses that are have those growth aspirations probably are adding complexity um, into their uh, into their business, and with complexity comes various uh, risk and challenges you know unless you have the specific expertise to be able to manage that risk and complexity then um, then bringing in an expert to do that is definitely the right way to go so and even if you have an inkling of that expertise it's often a distraction of what you're there to do right so those CEOs or COOs that are actually quite financially literate and, and astute, that's not their number one priority within the business. And so every minute they spend on forecasting or cash flow management 
is a minute they're not selling or leading their team or achieving their strategic goals. And so, you know, in some ways it's almost harder when you have a bit of the expertise on that bus. Mm. I mean, it, it depends what, uh, it depends what their business, their day to day looks like. Right. Like if you're actually achieving those business goals, goals that meeting that growth and you know you have to uh you have to prioritize um you have to prioritize running the business versus working in the business so um and that's often that can be tough for people for sure it's tough for me interested in diving deeper into the topic of this episode every episode of let's with amplify has an accompanying ebook for you to download absolutely free Visit AmplifyAdvisors.ca slash category slash Let's Media to get access to the accompanying ebook for this episode. Each ebook helps you get the most out of the discussion that we have on each and every show. Head over to AmplifyAdvisors.ca slash category slash Let's Media to get access to the ebook now. The opposite, when you think about how you describe that it's complexity that really is what brings all of that in common and why a financial leader can make a difference you know, the opposite of that is a sta- is a stable, n- less growing business. So we always joke around about the analogy of a pizza shop on the corner, yep. which might be earning all kinds of amazing revenue, have a great brand within the community, but there's no intention of opening a second pizza shop. And so, you know, those businesses, we don't, we don't serve, serve because we don't add value. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, your initial response and reaction of complexity is exactly at the core of that. Totally. Yeah. We, it's an analogy we use often and it, it holds true as much today as it did when we started the business. So, um, um, yeah. And, and complexity goes up and down too. Right. Like, you know, you could add some new products and services or new locations and next thing you know, you figure that out and then it becomes stable and then it's not very complex anymore. That's just regular business. And so you, do you need a CFO at that point if you're not planning on doing anything more? Eh, you might, that CFO is going to be bored, right? And so the ability to scale up and down your hours on a CFO is, especially in like, you know, smaller, mid-sized companies is actually a huge benefit for for a company. So that you know, when I was at um, when I was at Graph, it was very much like that, where lots of challenges, lots of complexity. You know, figured a lot of that out over long hours and many tiers. Um, but once that was figured out, it was like, okay, what's next? Well, there wasn't much money to do what's next, and so it became pretty boring, right? Only, you know, needing to probably be there a few days a week. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the complexity, obviously, to your earlier point on the executive bus and and what you wish you had heard in 2018, Hmm. I think people are inherently complicated. So while I absolutely agree with you that 
it's a beautiful thing when your new product or new service becomes standard business. I mean, we've had that happen on subservices and yeah, that's true. People services. But then <laughs> always add complexity. Yeah, but then you uh then you unless unless you're a business that's hundred percent scalable and it's not a yeah. and they're not growing people, you know, there's always that people complexity which should be an a, attention focus of most leadership teams, which Ooh. time spent on a forecast or cash flow management is time not spent on your people. So I think that kind of reduces the opportunity to ever really get into a nice stable spot, but I Probably. but I hear you for sure. So, you know, and that goes to the teams over 10 people. And the other point that you brought up that I think is important about why, how many people you employ drives when you need a CFO yeah. um, is you said something about someone spends your money. <laughs> and this is so true because if you're a small startup, there's a lot of empowerment and spending authority, maybe at all levels of leadership. But even if you don't give a credit card out to your COO or you don't allow him or her to spend their own spend money on behalf of the company, when you're a tiny team, you just inherently know every dollar that's being spent. In fact, I was thinking about the other day because I made a spend that I felt was a big spend. And I was thinking to myself, three or four years ago, I would have talked to you about that like seven times to the sun to make sure you knew I was spending that. And the other day I spent it without having like fully talked to you about it, but it's in our budget and it's and it's not unexpected. And it just goes to prove like now that we're a team of 40 and we're bigger, like I don't have the opportunity or time to talk to you about every $300 that I spend. Yep. And so, you know, hence the need for a CFO because all of a sudden you've got five, six, seven people, like you don't have your finger on the pulse of what's being spent. And if you try to have that kind of control, wow, what a distraction from strategy and getting shit done, right? So more people means less transparency on where things are being spent. And, and then there's the risk and the process and all the rest. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I'd add to that, like, I think there are, though, a lot of business owners that think, like, a CFO is going to just, like, he's just there to approve those things, right? It's, like, maybe at the start, but if you have a, you know, really where the value is actually setting up a scalable process um, system that allows for... Uh, infrastructure to control that type of thing that meets and fits within your own kind of business philosophy or business environment that you run. So, so yeah, but, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, there are definitely a lot of like, they think of it as a cost control measure. Right. But, you know, to me, it's, it's actually more just risk mitigation. Yeah, and I agree with you. It's a very common stereotype that CPAs and CFOs and finance and accounting people are all all about cost and focused on cost. Now, I would argue that the vast majority of our peers uh, deserve that stereotype and are only focused on costs and that part of the um, of the P and L and the income statement. But certainly not a good CFO and certainly not an Amplify one. But I think it, it does come down to exactly what you're saying. You know, if you have if you have a budget in place, then you have guardrails for the spend, and you have the ability to forecast those spends because that 
timing has been set in the budget. And then you recognize, well, what's the process to get it to have the expenditure and get the approval, and and especially when it's not uh, an expected or timing or amount. And all of those processes and risk mitigations is where the value can be when it, when we're talking about costs in particular. Sure. And um, more people just means that leaning into those processes and leaning into those policies saves everybody time and attention and decision making, which which is one of the reasons why bigger teams means the need for a financial leader. Sure. When we look at revenue in particular, and it comes right down to your your concept of complexity, once you're at a million dollars, you often have a proven product or service or brand. That's um, that's a common theory, and I think that it's a good theory. You know, pri- prior to a million dollars, you might be chasing a market or trying to solve a problem that no one actually appreciates or values. But once you start hitting a million... On, I think it depends on your average, average selling price. True, yeah. I mean, if you only have one customer or <laughs> If you're a house builder in the home building business, you're probably not very successful at it. One million. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But <laughs> one house. <laughs> yeah, one house in these but, yeah, markets. If, you know, in a, in, a, in a lower price point uh, business where, you know, you need that that one million has produced a lot of volume, then sure. Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, at that point, when you have some kind of establishment in terms of, okay, I'm solving a problem that people value. People mm. actually want this product. They want this service. Then obviously you've got choices if you plan to grow over 5 million. Are you going to dig in further and get more volume of clients or higher Um higher value opportunities, or are you going to differentiate and diversify based on this core expertise or competency you have? And all of those choices, whether it's just the same thing and more of it, or diversified options and new packaging or what have you, all of that is complexity. So I think, you know, the idea that a CFO is required for a company that has over a million dollars in revenue and plans to grow over $5 million really does come down to that is that there's a lot of choices and optimization of you know what products make you money what services make you money which ones are loss leaders or brand establishers like there's a lot of information there and decisions to be made that great financial data can accelerate the opportunity so much faster yeah i i totally agree um but I don't think that's how people like back their way into the CFO seat. That's for sure. Or no, I agree. <laughs> but it would be nice if they did. If they were that rational, yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, I've been there myself, where you're like, I just need help. Some like I can't do this all. I need help. And uh, in some ways, that's probably not a bad thing. Here, you know, like. If you're at the point where you need help, whether it's like, you know, whether it's like I need better visibility over my operations and finances or I need, you know, someone to take over this banking relationship or what have you, um, it's probably, is it, would you like to have a better plan and be more calculated? Sure. But. That's generally not how life works. You generally 
seek out help when you're when you're in trouble. So, hence why this part of the discussion is the idealistic story, because uh, <laughs> it is very idealistic. Yeah, you nailed not it. Much reality <laughs> to it. Um, and you know, actually, in fact, when we've been idealistic, it hasn't worked out well. <laughs> so that's true. Sometimes it's like playing house. Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> trial and error. Yeah, the um, you did raise though the banking and investor relationship, which I think is you know a critical thing to think about. The idealistic story, the idealistic me, wonders why people why even so long. Yeah, why do you lend money to people that don't have financial leaders on board? And and why do you give money to companies that don't have financial leadership? But the reality is that... Great, great stories. Great stories, yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, you start playing with other people's money, and yet you don't have a financial leader on that executive team. And it just, to me, seems like an unnecessary um, thing to keep you up at night, right? Like... Why and and I have had the privilege of having you as a CFO, which has been great. Uh, and I I wouldn't want to be borrowing people, and we don't even borrow people's money really, just for working capital at best. I I can't even imagine taking someone else's money and being on the hook for someone else's money and not having like a second set of eyes that had a financial leadership lens. I just can't even imagine. But yet, I don't think we're very normal though. Maybe not, because most clients that we <laughs> do onboard already have debt or equity and other people's money, certainly. Sure. Yep. Um, and that's often what keeps them up at night and, and what makes it so challenging to deal with those cash flow issues and the complexities that you noted. Yeah, I mean, they, again, going back to, you know, they probably got the money because they needed it. <laughs> it was an emergency and... Um, and so they bring it in and then that money goes to work. And next thing you know, you have more emergencies and and then they realize I need help. So, yeah, the reporting, the compliance, the covenants, everything that goes along with using other people's money is a very time constraining and depleting activity for a lot of business owners and having an expert do that and manage the communication and the storytelling of the money can just make a big difference in terms of those relationships with investors and bankers. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, it's an idealistic story for sure, but without question, we've been doing this for going on five years and businesses that earn over a million dollars in revenue and have plans of revenue for over 5 million and teams of over 10 and and have banking investor relationships, the sooner they get the CFO, the better they're going to get a return on that investment and, and the more success they're going to have as an executive team and get them past those ceilings that they hit in business when they're trying to get to another stage. So before we move on, any other things you'd want to point out on navigating business? No. So the boring part of the conversation, but essential is, you know, who is the accounting and finance function? And I always say, you know, COVID to some degree was a blessing for Amplify because if you remember, it was a while ago, pre-COVID, Jesse, but if you remember, we were still part of the sales team and how much time did we spend explaining to people what a CFO was? Like pretty much the entire sales cycle, don't you think? Yeah. 
It was crazy. And so the sales cycle was always an educational process. Who's the CFO? Why do I need a CFO? What is a CFO? And I do think that the pandemic, one of the uh, one of the blessings that we've seen is that people have a much better understanding of what a CFO is and why they need a finance leader. And they certainly didn't come to that education uh, in a way that they'd want to repeat or that they're happy about, but they recognized, wow, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this crisis or I don't I don't have the ability to apply for these business grants and government opportunities. And as a result, they realized, okay, my tax advisor does great work in tax and my bookkeeper does great work in recording the historical data of my company, but I don't have a finance leader. And so it's a great feeling to know that people now are approaching us and looking for finance leaders and looking for CFOs. Um, I personally don't think that this moment in the sun is going to last. I think we'll be back to no one caring what the difference between a CFO and a tax expert and a bookkeeper and a controller is, but I'm enjoying the warmth at the moment. What are your thoughts? Do you think it'll last forever or, or people will forget quickly? I think it'll last forever. <laughs> really? You're more glass half full than me? Yeah. That never happens. Well, I mean, I mean, I think there's. I'm. I say it out of pessimism. Actually, pessimist. Pessimism. Okay, now I'm getting more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's <laughs> to think COVID was the last, uh, you know, macro economic thing that is going to impact businesses. Uh, I think that'd be naive. I mean, oh, and you're not talking pessimistic, then you're talking like doomsday. Well, <laughs> no, I don't think doomsday, but like, you know, banks are collapsing in the states again, right? There's true, you know, there's a crazy amount of inflation, there's headwinds, risks, there's um, you know, there's lots of things going on that are external to companies and. And um, I think that risk will only drive the need for more um, smart people being around boardroom tables. And, part, you know, one of those seats is a, is a CFO and, and that need will be continue to be felt. And I, and I think people are, are waking up to the fact that, hey, in the gig economy, um, you know, I can hire a really smart person for a fraction of the cost and, um, and actually get the, the the right level of attention and service that I need from that seat. And so, you know, I think now that we're, you know, it's become more trendy, I would say, um, I don't see that going away. If anything, it's going to grow because I think business is going to get more complicated, more regulations, right? Um, more globalization, maybe just change in general. So. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, the education, <clears throat> speaking of the sales process and education, back when we originally started, we were mm. one of the only fractional executive firms in town, and, and even in Western Canada, it wasn't a frequent uh, experience. So people didn't understand what fractional was and what that yeah. meant. And to your point, I think that it has become trendier, and it's become much more understood, and mm-hmm. recognizing that your strategy and your goals are of a certain level of complexity and sophistication, 
but yet you don't want the payroll of a two hundred plus thousand dollar executive because mm-hmm. you can't afford it, and maybe you don't have sixty plus hours worth of executive work for that person yet. Um, the opportunity to not sacrifice that level of leadership and and get what you actually need at a practical and scalable perspective is is definitely becoming much more well understood mm-hmm. for sure. Yep. So, you know, speaking of that, let's dive in a little bit. Who is a CFO? Who's a controller? Who's a bookkeeper? Who's a tax expert? And what are the differences? So, you know, we obviously have amazing friends in the tax world. They're all very busy um, at this time of year. And we would not classify ourselves as tax experts. Uh, we're not a tax registered CPA firm either. So even if we are experts uh, individually, we're not permitted from a compliance perspective to do taxes for our clients. But we do do them from a CFO seat and from a controller seat and a bookkeeper seat. So, you know, Jesse, for those that don't live and breathe the accounting and finance function, what's your definition of a tax expert so that people get it? I think there's two aspects. One that actually does the compliance and then planning of minimization of tax. So, so strategy, you know, legal structures, all that fun stuff that generally people that live and breathe the, the regulations and legislation, um, understand very well. And, um, and can advise clients on, um, and then obviously there's the people that actually just hammer out tax returns and make sure keep you out of jail. And so, what is your favorite thing to talk about? No, I'm kidding. It's not your favorite. That would be hockey or NetSuite. But uh, one of your favorite things to talk about is the risks of turning to your tax partner mm. with a CFO question and thinking that you don't need a CFO because the partner at the accounting firm you work with is just an incredible business leader helping you in all ways a CFO would help. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think, I think the challenge with, uh, to be honest, not just a tax advisor, like with any advisor is how well do they know your business, right? You know, they're picking up your file once a year and Twice a year, maybe you go for lunch, you tell them, do they really understand your strategy? Do they really understand, like, the nuances of of how your business operates? Uh, I don't know. I've been there, and I would say it's a pretty bold statement to say that as an advisor, you know, you're in that level of understanding of your clients. Um, You know, you're, you're... you're paid to answer as an advisor specific pointed questions and but not you know have a broad enough lens that you can give advice on what they're not looking for or what they don't know right so or they didn't ask or they did exactly they didn't ask i think that's a better way to put it um and so you know it's not uh, it's not to say you know your year end accountant that you go talk to for year-end meeting about how you did and your taxes is a valuable conversation. I think it is, and I think it's a conversation 
even when you're managing risk financially that you probably should still have because hell if they if they it might minimize your taxes in the future right but um from a strategic level perspective i think it's asking a lot of those people to and 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 i've seen people like that get thrown out of the bus which i I don't think is fair either um you know this guy, this girl told me this, and it's like, okay, well, <laughs> you just ran with that advice instead of actually looking for um, different viewpoints. You know, probably the onus lies more on the CEO, business owner, than that tax account, but that's just the reality of the industry. I went to you. You know my business. Why didn't you help me get through this financial challenge? Yeah, and I think what frustrates me when people think their tax expert is the equivalent of their CFO is exactly what you're speaking of. There's no way when you look at the number of clients that that person has to serve that they can understand your strategy and your business in a way that's intimate enough to be expected to be making these decisions essentially for you Hmm. or with you which is what a CFO does. They make decisions in some cases for you and in some cases with you, depending on the role and responsibilities and nature of the decision. And so that's, you know, that is unfair to that tax expert. Further to that point, most tax experts grow up in the firm having been maybe an auditor and a tax expert. So they've never been necessarily a business leader and they've never necessarily worked in an operational business. They've worked in a firm, which is a very unique type of business and not necessarily transferable or relatable Hmm. to most of their clients. So I think that is something that we sometimes forget is that, yes, they're a business leader and, oh my goodness, they know more important things than most of us because tax is very complicated and very important uh, but that doesn't necessarily transfer to being a business leader from an operational strategic perspective. Mm. And then the last thing to point out, which goes back to what you pointed out at the 2018, what you wanted to hear, and we talked about it a lot with the executive bus and and everything else, is the people side. Mm. Often people are the most complex parts of a business, and whether a decision is a good decision or a bad decision is is going to be very much anchored on your people and your culture. And the chances that your tax expert has any real exposure to that is almost nil. Like, it's highly unlikely that they're exposed to anything about your people or your culture. So very unfair to expect them to have a good business leadership point of view without knowing such a fundamental part of your business, I think. Yep. Um, Bookkeepers. Obviously, many, many business owners will lean on their bookkeeper far past the point of the bookkeeper's uh, capacity or even desire. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, when we talk about it not being fair on the tax expert, it's even arguably less fair to expect your bookkeeper to be stepping up in the role of a CFO or controller because they have a volume of clients that they need to serve and and they do great work. And that work is detail-oriented, it's record-keeping, it's compliance, it's historical. And to expect them to step out of those weeds is hard. I mean, you and I have experienced this ourselves. The minute you get into the weeds, when you try and step out of the and see the forest from the trees and make big decisions based on trends and 
and uh, the full picture, it's hard for anybody, even if they have that skill set, because you're so tied into the details. Um, you know, what, what would you say that the biggest difference, like how would you describe a bookkeeper so that business owners understand what a bookkeeper is in the function of accounting and finance? Somebody that understands how to record transactions but has no idea about a balance sheet, <laughs> uh, which is not their skill set. So that's not a, that's not definitely not a, like a knock. Um, but too many times you go to a business owner and, you know, they don't understand why their bookkeeper can't, you know, their balance sheet is being questioned by the bank. And you're like, well, there's about five years worth of parked items there. So, you know, they've never been dealt with. Um, probably need to deal with them. So, yeah. Yeah, fair point. They're oftentimes a bookkeeper. Good with collections, good with invoicing, good with payroll, good with general accounting journal entries. Sometimes not really there. Um, but, yeah, good with, like, day-to-day -day accounting transactions and your income statement. Um, sometimes not as expenses. Sometimes not that either. Um, but... You know, a lot of these accounting softwares, too, they, they handle that pretty well these days in terms of, you know, your general day-to-day -day transactions. So, but generally, yeah, um, you know, that back office kind of transactional function of, which is important. And, uh, I mean, a good bookkeeper, I, I wouldn't overvalue the, <laughs> there's a lot of not very strong bookkeepers out there, so. Good bookkeepers are definitely, um, if you can find them, um, super valuable. But they also have a ceiling. Right? Absolutely. So now if we go into the more complex area, the finance leader area, you've got the CFO and you've got the controller. And many times we have businesses approach us saying they need a controller and want a controller. And, you know, question number one is this is a, is this a cost-driven decision? Do you want a controller because you think it's cheaper? And we've made the hard decision, the strategic decision, that we don't we don't sell a fractional controller to companies that don't have someone functioning as a CFO uh, because we believe it's a cost-driven decision and we believe that the controller will be set up to fail and the business will ultimately try and get the controller to step up into a CFO role of which they don't have the capacity or the scope or the uh, potentially the experience to do. Um, obviously, in our recruiting department, we're less idealistic uh, because we're serving a need that's predefined by the client. So certainly, we are placing controllers on a regular basis in companies that don't necessarily have a CFO. Um, and that's a risk that they're taking on instead of us. And, and oftentimes, they are successful. Uh, without question, uh, we see controllers sometimes rise to the occasion and do great work and and run a successful accounting and finance function. Um, Jesse, if you could describe what the difference between a CFO and controller is in a few words or sentences, how do you look at it? Someone that looks backwards and someone that looks forward. That's about it. And for our listeners, who's who? 
Someone looks backwards or and tells the accurate story is a really good controller. Someone looks forward is a really good CFO. And usually they aren't the same person. Absolutely. So when we think about that looking backwards that you're speaking of for a controller, it's about leading the accounting and finance team, ensuring that you've got that foundation, you've got the good data, it's accurate, it's timely, uh, you're set from a compliance perspective, historical information is all there. And we know that history often repeats itself and the best forecasts start with great historical foundational data. And, mm-hmm. and that's how you start every good forecast. That's how you just start every good financial strategy and decision. So in no way should anybody uh, understate the importance of a controller. Critically important. Absolutely. And I would argue that you cannot be a good CFO if that controllership and that foundation isn't taken care of, Correct. no matter how good you are. Yep. Correct. Um, but a CFO, to your point, is looking forward. So it's about the financial strategy the overall contribution to strategy and business leadership and, you know, making those decisions that are opportunistic. So, you know, a CFO is going to spend more time thinking about growth and revenue and how that balance sheet supports the capital needs and the banking and investor relationships go forward. And a controller often isn't going to have that opportunity. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about. To some degree, even if they have that skill set, they're in the weeds so much that they don't necessarily have even the chance to step out and see the bigger picture. And then in other cases, they're just not there from a years or experience or a skill set perspective. Yeah, I think there's lots of good controllers that can turn into really good CFOs. Um, You know, I think... I think it really depends on, you know, good CFOs are pretty business savvy, um, really understand kind of business risk, really understand um, pricing, sales, right, Um, or financing, obviously. They have a pretty broad, I guess, experience base Mm, and that takes time to develop so um, you know you often see a lot of I often talk to a lot of controllers that are more junior you know earlier in their careers and they think because they can um, hammer a month end out and get have really accurate books that qualifies them for the seat above them and Sometimes that's the case, I guess. I never say it doesn't happen, but most of the time, they're missing a big piece. And that's usually years of experience. Right? So, yeah. So when we hire, I often, and I mean, I've been burnt, so I learned this the hard way for sure, but I often tell our CFO candidates, we don't put people in CFO slash controller seats anymore. And uh, every job that we do, uh, there's someone in the controller seat, whether it's Amplify and where the entire accounting department with a bookkeeper, a controller, and a CFO, or in other cases, someone else is holding that controller seat internally um, as a team that we inherit or what have you. So the CFO and the controller seat are always held by two different people, um, and we only sell them separately 
And that's the case with 100% of our accounting and uh, finance leader clients these days. But having said that, every day in small, medium business, our CFOs are doing controller work. So they don't hold the job. It's not their roles and responsibilities in terms of what they're assigned and the scope that they're responsible for. But they're going to do controller work. And they're going to do it because small, medium business is going to have peaks and valleys in terms of work. There's going to be vacation coverage. There's going to be transactions. There's going to be... Um, fixing. Fixing things. Uh, some of the controllers, certainly not the Amplify controllers, obviously, but the controllers we inherit often aren't fully up to capacity in terms of doing the controller job. So you got to roll up your sleeves, teach them and shadow them and really get into the weeds with them. And so, you know, that's been a big evolution for us at Amplify, being willing to have the courage to to set these roles and responsibilities, set these expectations, and often walk away from companies that aren't willing to look at it our way um, and grateful that we don't actually have to walk away because recruiting can often help them and, and serve their needs their way. But the finance leader department does have to walk away. You know, if you think back as to what a CFO slash controller is and why we have stepped away from it. Like what, what are your thoughts and what would you want a business owner to understand about that CFO slash controller concept? If they think someone can fill that whole job. And there's also business owners that think that one CPA can do bookkeeping CFO and controller, mm -hmm. which is even more broad and impossible. <laughs> well, I mean, you just have to step back and, Ask them what they're good at, right? Are they good at sales, operations, marketing, finance, all? Do they have that broadest skill set? Because they're different skill sets and um, being able to understand that um, uh, very, very difficult to find unicorns that can do it all. Um, and if, even if they can do it all, do they want to do it all, right? So, um, yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think the evolution of a career, well, I wouldn't say that most of us start as bookkeepers and then move to controller necessarily. No. But, but to your earlier point, many, many CFOs were controllers first, especially their yeah. CPA accounting background. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just because it's 40 hours worth of work, how many CPAs are going to be willing to do 20 of those hours in bookkeeping, right? Very, very few for very, at least not for long. And then short, it's got to be short lived. It's got to be short lived. Exactly. Which is, you know, where the fractional concept is just an amazing opportunity for small, medium business mm -hmm. because it could be 40 hours of work, but let's split it between a bookkeeper, a controller, and CFO so everyone's more engaged and bought in. Plus, you have the oversight and and that reduces risk, et cetera. So um, it's a great opportunity for sure. So we're wrapping up navigating business and discussing how growth businesses can grow with the right people, including financial leadership. We've talked about how getting that leadership team in the executive bus is essential and knowing that you have the right people in the right seats and where that CFO fits onto that bus. We talked about how so many growth businesses hit a ceiling in business as they're moving from one stage to the next, and how lucky for us, that's when we often get called because 
the recognizing that in order to move to the next business stage, I need to invest in financial leadership is something that we see a lot in the market. We talked about what does it mean to need a CFO and that idealistic story and and how for our clients, the ones that invest in a CFO, when they hit a million dollars, they have goals to be over $5 million in revenue, their team is over 10 people, and they have investor or biz banking relationships. That's the ideal point to get a CFO if you have all four or a few of those criterias. And then who is a CFO and how does that compare to the other people on the accounting and finance team? Before we wrap this discussion of navigating uh, business and how growth businesses need the right people, process, and technology, I just want to open the floor to talk about that process and technology part, Jesse, and where that comes into play and what the right time to invest, for example, in NetSuite, which is the ERP that we sell, um, which is a way of getting your process and technology up to date for a scalable business. When do you think you should be looking at that as you navigate business. I mean, it should start in the planning phase in terms of your business plans at the end of the day, right? Like where are you going? You know, what does your goals look like and how are you going to support it? So um, it should be on the roadmap. It should be uh, planned for. Unfortunately, most clients, again, don't do that. It's... <laughs> they generally call when things are broken, right? Um, and it's going to cost you a lot more money and time to fix a broken problem than to fix it from the start. So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, and what, but what, what life cycle that is in a business, you know, we talk about employees, the earlier the better, you know. Do it early. It'll be a lot cheaper. It'll be a lot less of a a lot less of a problem when you have to yell, put up your hand for help. Absolutely. So that's our discussion on growth businesses and how they can grow with the right people, including financial leadership, and looking at how financial strategy can be supported by the people and process and technology that gets it done. Thanks for joining us at Let's with Amplify. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's with Amplify. We hope you enjoyed the show and got some value out of today's talk. If you did, we'd love to hear from you. We invite you to leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform or comment on YouTube. And be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to check out more information on all of our episodes and free ebooks, visit amplifyadvisors.ca slash category slash Let's Media. Production of the podcast is by At Heart Creative and can be found at atheartcreative.com.